Welcome to Storyberries Radio. You can read along with any of our stories all for free at our website, storyberries.com. The White Doe by the Countess Dolnoy. Once upon a time, there lived a king and queen who loved each other dearly and would have been perfectly happy if they had only had a little son or daughter to play with. They never talked about it and always pretended that there was nothing in the world to wish for, but sometimes, when they looked at other people's children, their faces grew sad and their courtiers and attendants knew the reason why. One day the queen was sitting alone by the side of a waterfall which sprung from some rocks in the large park adjoining the castle. She was feeling more than usually miserable and had sent away her ladies so that no one might witness her grief. Suddenly she heard a rustling movement in the pool below the waterfall and on glancing up she saw a large crab climbing onto a stone beside her. Great queen, said the crab, I am here to tell you that the desire of your heart will soon be granted. But first you must permit me to lead you to the palace of the fairies, which, though hard by, has never been seen by mortal eyes because of the thick clouds that surround it. When there you will know more, that is, if you will trust, trust yourself to me. The queen had never before heard an animal speak and was struck dumb with surprise. However, she was so enchanted at the words of the crab that she smiled sweetly and held out her hand. It was taken, not by the crab, which had stood there only a moment before, but by a little old woman smartly dressed in white and crimson, with green ribbons in her grey hair. And wonderful to say, not a drop of water fell from her clothes. The old woman ran lightly down a path along which the queen had been a hundred times before, but it seemed so different she could hardly believe it was the same. Instead of having to push her way through nettles and brambles, roses and jasmine hung about her head, while under her feet the ground was sweet with violets. The orange trees were so tall and thick that even at midday the sun was never too hot, and at the end of the path was a glimmer of something so dazzling that the queen had to shade her eyes and peep at it only between her fingers. "'What can it be?' she asked, turning to her guide, who answered, Oh, that is the fairy's palace, and here are some of them coming to meet us. As she spoke, the gate swung back, and six fairies approached, each bearing in her hand a flower made of precious stones, but so like a real one that it was only by touching you could tell the difference. Madam, they said, we know not how to thank you for this mark of your confidence, but have the happiness to tell you that in a short time you will have a little daughter. The queen was so enchanted at this news that she nearly fainted with joy, but when she was able to speak, she poured out all her gratitude to the fairies for their promised gift. And now, she said, I ought not stay any longer, for my husband will think that I have run away, or that some evil beast has devoured me. In a little while it happened, just as the fairies had foretold, and a baby girl was born in the palace. Of course, both the king and queen were delighted, and the child was called Desiree, which means desired, for she had been desired for five long years before her birth. At first the queen could think of nothing but her new plaything, but then she remembered the fairies who had sent it to her, bidding her ladies bring her the posy of jewelled flowers which had been given her at the palace. She took each flower in her hand and called it by name, and in turn each fairy appeared before her. But as unluckily often happens, the one to whom she owed most, the crab fairy, was forgotten, and by this 
as in the case of other babies you have read about, much mischief was wrought. However, for the moment all was gaiety in the palace, and everybody inside ran to the windows to watch the fairies' carriages, for no two were alike. One had a car of ebony drawn by white pigeons, another was lying back in her ivory chariot driving ten black crows, while the rest had chosen rare woods or many-coloured seashells with scarlet and blue macaws, long-tailed peacocks or green lovebirds for horses. These carriages were only used on occasion of state, for when they went to war flying dragons, fiery serpents, lions or leopards took the place of beautiful birds. The fairies entered the queen's chamber followed by little dwarfs who carried their presents and looked much prouder than their mistresses. One by one their burdens were spread upon the ground and no one had ever seen such lovely things. Everything that a baby could possibly wear or play was there and besides they had other and more precious gifts to give her which only children who have fairies for godmothers can ever hope to possess. They were all gathered around the heap of pink cushions on which the baby lay asleep when a shadow seemed to fall between them and the sun while a cold wind blew through the room. Everybody looked up and there was the crab fairy who had grown as tall as the ceiling in her anger. So I am forgotten, cried she in a voice so loud that the queen trembled as she heard it. Who was it soothed you in your trouble? Who was it led you to the fairies? Who was it brought you back in safety to your home again? Yet I, I am overlooked, while these who have done nothing in comparison are petted and thanked. The queen, almost dumb with terror, in vain tried to think of some explanation or apology, but there was none, and she could only confess her fault and implore forgiveness. The fairies also did their best to soften the wrath of their sister, and knowing that, like many plain people who are not fairies, she was very vain, they entreated her to drop her crab's disguise and to become once more the charming person they were accustomed to see. For some time the enraged fairy would listen to nothing, but at length the flatteries began to take effect. The crab's shell fell from her, she shrank into her usual size, and lost some of her fierce expression. Well, she said, I will not cause the princess's death as I had meant to do, but at the same time she will have to bear the punishment of her mother's fault, as many other children have done before her. The sentence I pass upon her is that if she is allowed to see one ray of daylight before her fifteenth birthday, she will rue it bitterly, and it may perhaps cost her her life. And with these words she vanished by the window through which she came, while the fairies comforted the weeping queen and took counsel how best the princess might be kept safe during her childhood. At the end of half an hour they had made up their minds what to do, and at the command of the fairies a beautiful palace sprung up, close to that of the king and queen, but different from every other palace in the world, in having no windows and only a door right under the earth. However, once within, daylight was hardly missed, so brilliant were the multitudes of tapers that were burning on the walls. Now up to this time the princess's history has been like the history of many a princess that you have read about, but when the period of her imprisonment was nearly over, her fortunes took another turn. For almost fifteen years the fairies had taken care of her, and amused her, and taught her, so that when she came into the world she might be no whit behind the daughters of other kings in all that makes a princess charming and accomplished. They all loved her dearly, but the fairy Tulip loved her most of all, and as the princess's fifteenth birthday drew near, the fairy began to tremble, lest something terrible should happen some accident which had not been foreseen. 
Do not let her out of your sight, said Tulip to the queen, and meanwhile let her portrait be painted and carried to the neighbouring courts, as is the custom, in order that the kings may see how far her beauty exceeds that of every other princess, and that they may demand her in marriage for their sons. And so it was done, and as the fairy had prophesied, all the young princes fell in love with the picture, but the last one to whom it was shown could think of nothing else, and refused to let it be removed from his chamber, where he spent whole days gazing at it. The king his father was much surprised at the change which had come over his son, who generally passed all his time in hunting or hawking, and his anxiety was increased by a conversation he overheard between two of his courtiers that they feared the prince must be going out of his mind, so moody had he become. Without losing a moment, the king went to visit his son, and no sooner had he entered the room than the young man flung himself at his father's feet. "'You have betrothed me already to a bride I can never love,' cried he. "'But if you will not consent to break off the match "'and ask for the hand of the Princess Desiree, "'I shall die of misery, thankful to be alive no longer.' "'These words much displeased the king, "'who felt that, in breaking off the marriage already arranged, "'he would almost certainly be bringing his su on his subjects "'a long and bloody war. "'So, without answering, he turned away, "'hoping that a few days might bring his son to reason.' But the prince's condition grew rapidly so much worse that the king, in despair, promised to send an embassy at once to Desiree's father. This news cured the young man in an instant of all his ills, and he began to plan out every detail of dress and of horses and carriages which were necessary to make the train of the envoy, whose name was Bekasig, as splendid as possible. He longed to form part of the embassy himself, if only in the disguise of a page, but this the king would not allow, and so the prince had to content himself with searching the kingdom for everything that was rare and beautiful to send the princess. Indeed, he arrived just as the embassy was starting with his portrait, which had been painted in secret by the court painter. The king and queen wished for nothing better than that their daughter should marry into such a great and powerful family, and received the ambassador with every sign of welcome. They even wished him to see the princess Desiree, but this was prevented by the fairy Tulip, who feared some ill might come of it. "'And be sure you tell him,' added she, "'that the marriage cannot be celebrated until she is fifteen years old, "'or else some terrible misfortune will happen to the child.' So when Bekasig, surrounded by his train, made a formal request that the princess Desiree might be given in marriage to his master's son, the king replied that he was much honoured, and he would gladly give his consent, but that no one could even see the princess until her fifteenth birthday, as the spell laid upon her in the cradle by a spiteful fairy would not cease to work till that was passed. The ambassador was greatly surprised and disappointed, but he knew too much about fairies to venture to disobey them. Therefore he had to content himself with presenting the prince's portrait to the queen, who lost no time in carrying it to the princess. As the girl took it in her hands, it suddenly spoke, as it had been taught to do, and uttered a compliment of the most delicate and charming sort, which made the princess flush with pleasure. "'How would you like to have a husband like that?' asked the queen, laughing. "'As if I knew anything about husbands,' replied Desiree, who had long ago guessed the business of the ambassador. "'Well, he will be your husband in three months,' answered the queen, ordering the prince's presence to be brought in. The princess was very pleased with them and admired them greatly, but the queen noticed that all the while her eyes constantly strayed from the softest silks and the most brilliant jewels to the portrait of the prince. The ambassador, finding that there was no hope of his being allowed to see the princess, took his leave and returned to his own court, but here a new difficulty appeared. 
The prince, though transported with joy at the thought that Desiree was indeed to be his bride, was bitterly disappointed that she had not been allowed to return with Becca Sig, as he had foolishly expected, and never having been taught to deny himself anything or to control his feelings, he fell as ill as he had done the day before. He would eat nothing, nor take pleasure in anything, but lay all day on a heap of cushions, gazing at the picture of the princess. If I have to wait three months before I can marry the princess, I shall die, was all this spoilt boy would say. And at length the king, in despair, resolved to send a fresh embassy to Desiree's father to implore him to permit the marriage to be celebrated at once. I would have presented my prayer in person, he added in his letter, but my great age and infirmities do not suffer me to travel. However, my envoy has orders to agree to any arrangement that you may propose. On his arrival at the palace, Bekasig pleaded his young master's cause as fervently as the king, his father, could have done, and entreated that the princess might be consulted in the matter. The queen hastened to the marble tower and told her daughter of the sad state of the prince. Desiree sank down fainting at the news, but soon came to herself again, and set about inventing a plan which would enable her to go to the prince without risking the doom pronounced over her by the wicked fairy. I see, she exclaimed joyfully at last. Let a carriage be built through which no light can come, and let it be brought into my room. I will then get into it, and we can travel swiftly during the night and arrive before dawn at the palace of the prince. Once there, I can remain in some underground chamber where no light can come. Ah, how clever you are, cried the queen, clasping her in her arms, and she hurried away to tell the king. What a wife our prince will have, said Bekasig, bowing low, but I must hasten back with the tidings and to prepare the underground chamber for the princess. And so he took his leave. In a few days the carriage commanded by the princess was ready. It was of green velvet, scattered over with large golden thistles and lined inside with a silver brocade embroidered with pink roses. It had no windows, of course, but the fairy Tulip, whose counsel had been asked, had managed to light it up with a soft glow that came no one knew whither. It was carried straight up to the great hall of the tower, and the princess stepped into it, followed by her faithful maid of honour, Eglatine, and by her lady-in-waiting, Cerisette, who had also fallen in love with the prince's portrait and was bitterly jealous of her mistress. The fourth place in the carriage was filled by Cerisette's mother, who had been sent by the queen to look after the three young people. Now the fairy of the fountain was the godmother of the princess Nera, to whom the prince had been betrothed before the picture of Desiree had made him faithless. She was very angry at the slight put upon her godchild, and from that moment kept careful watch on the princess. In this journey she saw her chance, and it was she who, invisible, sat by Cerisette and put bad thoughts into the mind of both her and her mother. The way to the city where the prince lived ran for the most part through a thick forest, and every night there was no moon, not a single star could be seen through the trees. The guards who travelled with the princess opened the carriage to give it an airing. This went on for several days, till only twelve hours' journey lay between them and the palace. Then Cerisette persuaded her mother to cut a great hole in the side of the carriage with a sharp knife, which she herself had brought for the purpose. In the forest the darkness was so intense that no one perceived what she had done, but when they left the last trees behind them and emerged into the open country, the sun was up, and for the first time since her babyhood, Desiree found herself in the light of day. She looked up in surprise at the dazzling brilliance that streamed through the hole, and then gave a sigh which seemed to come from her heart. 
The carriage door swung back as if by magic, and a white doe sprung out, and in the moment was lost in sight in the forest. But as quick as she was, Eglatine, her maid of honour, had time to see where she went, and jumped from the carriage in pursuit of her, followed at a distance by the guards. Sarasette and her mother looked at each other in surprise and joy. They could hardly believe their good fortune, for everything had happened exactly as they wished. The first thing to be done was to conceal the hole which had been cut, and when this was managed, with the help of the angry fairy, though they did not know it, Sarasette hastened to take off her own clothes and put on those of the princess, placing the crown of diamonds on her head. She found this heavier than she expected, but then she had never been accustomed to wear crowns, which makes all the difference. At the gates of the city the carriage was stopped by a guard of honour sent by the king as an escort to his son's bride. Though Sarasette and her mother could of course see nothing of what was going on outside, they heard plainly the shouts of welcome from the crowds along the streets. The carriage stopped at length in the vast hall, which Bekasig had prepared for the reception of the princess. The Grand Chamberlain and the Lord High Steward were waiting her, and when the false bride stepped into the brilliantly lighted room, they bowed low and said they had orders to inform His Highness the moment she arrived. The prince, whom the strict etiquette of the court had prevented from being present in the underground hall, was burning with impatience in his own apartments. "'So she has come!' cried he, throwing down the bow he had been pretending to mend. "'Well, was I not right? Is she not a miracle of beauty and grace?' "'And has she her equal in the whole world?' "'The ministers looked at each other and made no reply, "'till at length the chamberlain, who was the bolder of the two, "'observed, "'My lord, as to her beauty, you can be the judge of that yourself. "'No doubt it is as great as you say, "'but at present it seems to have suffered, as is natural, "'from the fatigues of the journey.' "'This was certainly not what the prince had expected to hear. "'Could the portrait have flattered her?' He had known of such things before, and a cold shiver ran through him, but with an effort he kept silent from further questioning, and only said, "'Has the king been told that the princess is in the palace?' "'Yes, your highness, and he has probably already joined her.' "'Then I will go too,' said the prince. Weak as he was from his long illness, the prince descended the staircase, supported by the ministers, and entered the room just in time to hear his father's loud cry of astonishment and disgust at the sight of Cerisette.' "'There has been treachery at work!' he exclaimed, while the prince leant, dumb with horror, against the doorpost. But the lady-in-waiting, who had been prepared for something of the sort, advanced, holding in her hand the letters which the king and queen had entrusted to her. "'This is the princess Desiree,' she said, pretending to have heard nothing, "'and I have the honour to present you with these letters from my liege lord and lady, together with the casket containing the princess's jewels.' The king did not move or answer her, so the prince, leaning on the arm of Bekasig, approached a little closer to the false princess, hoping against hope that his eyes had deceived him. But the longer he looked, the more he agreed with his father that there was some treason somewhere, for in no single respect did the portrait resemble the woman before him. Sarasette was so tall that the dress of the princess did not reach her ankles, and so thin that her bones showed through the stuff. Besides that, her nose was hooked, and her teeth black and ugly. In his turn, the prince stood rooted to the spot. At last he spoke, and his words were addressed to his father and not to the bride who had come so far to marry him. "'We have been deceived,' he said, "'and it will cost me my life.' And he leaned so heavily on the envoy that Bekasig feared he was going to faint and hastily laid him on the floor. For some minutes no one could attend to anybody but the prince, but as soon as he revived, the lady-in-waiting made herself heard." "'Oh, my lovely princess, why 
Why did we ever leave home? cried she. But the king, your father, will avenge the insults that have been heaped on you when we tell him how you have been treated. I will tell him myself, replied the king in wrath. He promised me a wonder of beauty. He has sent me a skeleton. I'm not surprised he has kept her for fifteen years hidden from the eyes of the world. Take them both away, he continued, turning to his guards, and lodge them in a state prison. There is something more I have to learn of the matter. His orders were obeyed, and the prince, loudly bewailing his sad fate, was led back to his bed, where for many days he lay in a high fever. At length he slowly began to gain strength, but his sorrow was still so great that he could not bear the sight of a strange face, and shuddered at the notion of taking his proper part in the court ceremonies. Unknown to the king, or to anybody but Bekasig, he planned that, as soon as he was able, he would make his escape and pass the rest of his life in some solitary place. It was some weeks before he had regained his health sufficiently to carry out his design, but finally, one beautiful starlit night, the two friends stole away, and when the king woke the next morning he found a letter lying by his bed, saying that his son had gone, he knew not whither. He wept bitter tears at the news, for he loved the prince dearly, but he felt that perhaps the young man had done wisely, and he trusted to time and Bekasig's influence to bring the wanderer home. And while these things were happening, what had become of the white doe? Though when she sprang from the carriage she was aware that some unkind fate had changed her into an animal, yet still she saw herself in a stream. She had no idea what it was. Is it really I, Desiree? she said to herself, weeping. What wicked fairy can have treated me so, and I shall never, never take my own shape again? My only comfort that, in this great forest full of lions and serpents, my life will be a short one. Now the fairy Tulip was as much grieved at the sad fate of the princess as Desiree's own mother could have been if she had known of it. Still, she could not help feeling that if the king and queen had listened to her advice, the girl would be by this time safely in the walls of her new home. However, she loved Desiree too much to let her suffer more than could be helped, and it was she who guided Eglatine to the place where the white doe was standing, cropping the grass, which was her dinner. At the sound of footsteps, the pretty creature lifted her head, and when she saw her faithful companion approaching, she bounded towards her and rubbed her head on Eglatine's shoulder. The maid of honour was surprised, but she was fond of animals, and stroked the white doe tenderly, speaking gently to her all the while. Suddenly the beautiful creature lifted her head and looked up into Eglatine's face, with tears streaming from her eyes. A thought flashed through her mind. As quick as lightning, the girl flung herself on her knees and, lifting the animal's feet, kissed them one by one. "'My princess! Oh, my dear princess!' cried she, and again the white doe rubbed her head against her, for though the spiteful fairy had taken away her power of speech, she had not deprived her of her reason. All day long the two remained together, and when Eglatine grew hungry, she was led by the white doe to a part of the forest where pears and peaches grew in abundance.' But as night came on, the maid of honour was filled with the terrors of the wild beasts which had beset the princess during her first night in the forest. "'Is there no hut or cave we could go into?' asked she. But the doe only shook her head, and the two sat down and wept with fright. The fairy Tulip, who, in spite of her anger, was very soft-hearted, was touched at their distress and quickly flew to their help. "'I cannot take away the spell altogether,' she said, "'for the fairy of the fountain is stronger than I.' but I can shorten the time of your punishment and am able to make it less hard, for as soon as darkness falls, you shall resume your own shape. 
To think that by the by she would cease to be a white doe, indeed that she would at once cease to be one during the night, was for the present joy enough for Desiree, and she skipped about on the grass in the prettiest manner. "'Go straight down the path in front of you,' continued the fairy, smiling as she watched her. "'Go straight down the path, and you'll soon reach a little hut where you'll find shelter.' And with these words she vanished, leaving her hearers happier than they had ever thought they would be again. An old woman was standing at the door of the hut when Eglatine drew near, and with the white doe trotting by her side. "'Good evening,' she said. "'Could you give me a night's lodging for myself and my doe?' "'Certainly I can,' replied the old woman.' and she led them into a room with two little white beds, so clean and comfortable that it made you sleepy even to look at them. The door had hardly closed behind the old woman when the sun sank below the horizon, and Desiree became a girl again. "'Oh, Eglantine, what should I have done with you if you had not followed me?' she cried, and she flung herself into her friend's arms in a transport of delight. Early in the morning, Eglatine was awakened by the sound of somebody scratching at the door, and on opening her eyes she saw the white doe struggling to get out. The little creature looked up and into her face and nodded her head as the maid of honour unfastened the latch, but bounded away into the woods and was lost to sight in a moment. Meanwhile, the prince and Beckersig were wandering through the wood, till at last the prince grew so tired that he lay down under a tree and told Beckersig that he had better go in search of food and of some place where they could sleep. Beckersig had not gone very far when a turn of the path brought him face to face with the old woman who was feeding her doves before her cottage. "'Could you give me some milk and fruit?' asked he. "'I'm very hungry myself, and besides I've left a friend behind me who is still weak from illness.' "'Certainly I can,' answered the old woman, "'but come and sit down in my kitchen while I catch the goat and milk it.' Beckersig was glad enough to do as he was bid, and in a few minutes the old woman returned with a basket brimming over with oranges and grapes.' "'If your friend has been ill, he should not pass the night in the forest,' said she. "'I have a room in my hut, tiny enough, it is true, but better than nothing, "'and to that which you are both heartily welcome.' "'Bakasig thanked her warmly, and by this time it was almost sunset. "'He set out to fetch the prince. "'It was while he was absent that Eglatine and the white doe entered the hut.' and having, of course, no idea that in the very next room was the man whose childish impatience had been the cause of all their troubles. In spite of his fatigue, the prince slept badly, and directly it was light. He rose, and bidding Bekasig remain where he was, as he wished to be alone, he strolled out into the forest. He walked on slowly, just as his fancy led him, till suddenly he came to a wide open space, and in the middle was the white doe, quietly eating her breakfast. She bounded off at the sight of a man, but not before the prince, who had fastened on his bow without thinking, had let fly several arrows, which the fairy Tulip took care should do her no harm. But quickly as she ran, she soon felt her strength failing her, for fifteen years of life in a tower had not taught her how to exercise her limbs. Luckily the prince was too weak to follow her far, and in a turn of a path brought her close to the hut, where Eglatine was waiting for her. Panting for breath, she entered their room and flung herself down on the floor. When it was dark again and she was once more the Princess Desiree, she told Eglatine what had befallen her. "'I feared the fairy of the fountain and the cruel beasts,' she said, "'but somehow I never thought of the dangers that I ran from men. "'I do not know now what saved me.' "'You must stay quietly here till the time of your punishment is over,' answered Eglatine. But when the morning dawned and the girl turned into a doe, the longing for the forest came over her, and she sprang away as before. As soon as the prince was awake, he hastened to the place where, only the day before, he had found the white doe feeding, but of course she had taken care to go in the opposite direction. 
Much disappointed, he tried first one green path and then another, and at last, wearied with walking, he threw himself down and went fast asleep. Just at this moment, the white doe sprang out of the thicket nearby and started back trembling when she beheld her enemy lying there. Yet instead of turning to fly, something bade her go back and look at him unseen. As she gazed, a thrill ran through her, for she felt that, worn and wasted though he was by illness, it was the face of her destined husband. Gently stooping over him, she kissed his forehead, and at her touch, he awoke. For a minute they looked at each other, and to his amazement he recognised the white doe which had escaped him the previous day, but in an instant the animal was aroused to a sense of her danger, and she fled with all her strength into the thickest part of the forest. Quick as lightning the prince was on her track, but this time it was with no wish to kill or even wound the beautiful creature. "'Pretty doe, pretty doe, stop, I won't hurt you,' cried he, but his words were carried away by the wind. At length the doe could run no more, and when the prince reached her, she was lying stretched out on the grass, waiting for her death blow. But instead the prince knelt at her side, and stroked her, and bade her fear nothing, as he would take care of her. So he fetched a little water from the stream in his horn hunting cup. Then, cutting some branches from the trees, he twisted them into a litter, which he covered with moss, and laid the white doe gently on it. For a long time they remained thus. But when Desiree saw by the way that the light struck the trees that the sun must be near its setting, she was filled with alarm lest the darkness should fall and the prince should behold her in the human shape. No, he must not see me for the first time here, she thought, and instantly began to plan how to get rid of him. Then she opened her mouth and let her tongue hang out, as if she were dying of thirst, and the prince, as she expected, hastened to the stream to get her some more water. When he returned, the white doe was gone. That night Desiree confessed to Eglantine that her pursuer was no other than the prince, and that far from flattering him, the portrait had never done him any justice. "'Is it not hard to meet him in this shape?' wept she, "'when we both love each other so much?' But Eglantine comforted her, and reminded her that in a short time all would be well. The prince was very angry at the flight of the white doe, for whom he had taken so much trouble, and returning to the cottage he poured out his adventures and his wrath to Bacchusig, who could not help smiling.' "'She shall not escape me again,' cried the prince. "'If I hunt her every day for a year, I will have her at last.' And in this frame of mind he went to bed. When the white doe entered the forest the next morning, she had not made up her mind whether she would go and meet the prince or whether she would shun him and hide in the thickets of which she knew nothing. She decided that the last plan was the best, and so it would have been if the prince had not taken the very same direction in search of her.' Quite by accident he caught sight of her white skin shining through the bushes, and at the same instant she heard a twig snap under his feet. In a moment she was up and away, but the prince, not knowing how else to capture her, aimed an arrow at her leg, which brought her to the ground. The young man felt like a murderer as he ran hastily up to where the white doe lay and did his best to soothe the pain she felt, which in reality was the last part of the punishment sent by the fairy of the fountain. First he brought her some water, and then he fetched her some healing herbs, and having crushed them in his hands, lay them on the wound. "'Ah, what a wretch I was to have hurt you!' cried he, resting her head upon his knees, "'and now you'll hate me and fly from me forever.' For some time the doe lay quietly where she was, but as before she remembered that the hour of her transformation was near. She struggled to her feet, but the prince would not hear of her walking, and thinking the old woman might be able to dress her wound better than he could, he took her in his arms to carry her back to the hut. But small as she was, she made herself so heavy that after staggering a few steps under her weight, he laid her down and tied her fast to a tree with some of the ribbons off his hat. This done, he went away to get help. 
Meanwhile, Eglatine had grown very uneasy at the long absence of her mistress and had come out to look for her. Just as the prince passed out of sight, the fluttering ribbons danced before her eyes and she descried her beautiful princess bound to a tree. With all her might she worked at the knots, but not a single one could she undo, though all appeared so easy. She was still busy with them when a voice behind her said, "'Pardon me, fair lady, but it is my dough you are trying to steal.' "'Excuse me, good knight,' answered Eglatine, hardly glancing at him, "'but it is my dough that is tied up here, "'and if you wish for a proof of it, you can see she knows if she knows me or not. "'Touch my heart, little one,' she continued, dropping onto her knees, "'and the dough lifted up its forefoot and laid it on her side. "'Now put your arms around my neck and sigh.' "'And again the doe did as she was bid. "'You're right,' said the prince, "'but it is with sorrow I give her up to you, "'for though I have wounded her yet, I love her deeply.' To this Eglatine answered nothing, but carefully raising up the dough, she led her slowly to the hut. Now both the prince and Bekasig were quite unaware that the old woman had any guests beside themselves, and following afar were much surprised to behold Eglatine and her charge enter the cottage. They lost no time in questioning the old woman, who replied that she knew nothing about the lady and her white doe, who slept in the next chamber occupied by the prince and his friend, but that they were very quiet and paid her well. Then she went back to her kitchen. "'Do you know,' said Bakasik when they were alone, "'I am certain that the lady we saw is the maid of honour to the Princess Desiree, whom I met at the palace. "'And, as her room is next to this, it will be easy to make a small hole through which I can satisfy myself whether I am right or not.' "'So taking a knife out of his pocket, he began to saw away at the woodwork. "'The girls heard the grating noise, but fancying it was a mouse paid no attention, "'and Bekasig was left in peace to pursue his work.' At length the hole was large enough for him to peep through, and the sight was one to strike him dumb with amazement. He guessed truly the tall lady was Eglatine herself, but the other, where had he seen her? Ah, now he knew it was the lady of the portrait. Desiree, in a flowing dress of green silk, was lying stretched out upon cushions, and as Eglatine bent over her to bathe the wounded leg, she began to talk. "'Oh, let me die,' cried she, "'rather than go on leading this life. "'You cannot tell the misery of being a beast all the day "'and unable to speak to the man I love "'and whose impatience I owe my cruel fate. "'Yet even so, I cannot bring myself to hate him.' "'These words, low that they were spoken, "'reached Bekasig, who could hardly believe his ears. "'He stood silent for a moment then, "'crossing to the window out of which the prince was gazing. "'He took his arm and led him across the room.' A single glance was sufficient to show the prince that it was indeed Desiree, and how another had come to the palace bearing her name. At that instant he neither knew nor cared. Stealing on tiptoe from the room, he knocked at the next door, which was opened by Eglatine, who thought it was the old woman bearing their supper. She started back at the sight of the prince, whom this time she also recognised, but he thrust her aside and flung himself at the feet of Desiree, to whom he poured out all his heart. Dawn found them still conversing, and the sun was high in the heavens before the princess perceived that she retained her human form. Ah, how happy she was when she knew that the days of her punishment were over, and with a glad voice she told the prince the tale of her enchantment. So the story ended well after all, and the fairy Tulip, who turned out to be the old woman of the hut, made the young couple such a wedding feast as had never been seen since the world began. And everybody was delighted, except Ceriset and her mother, who were put in a boat and carried to a small island where they had to work hard for their living. The end. Thank you for reading with storyberries.com. Free stories for kids.